morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you're using uh, the Red Pew Bible, it's uh, page 257. Page 257. Well, if we were to take a poll in the room of your favorite Bible character, I, I can probably guess... For many of you, who that would be, it would be somebody like King David, who was brave and courageous and did so many brave and courageous things. He slew Goliath in faith. He was a great man of faith. Maybe you choose somebody like Moses, who led God's people in and through, uh, out of the out of Egypt and out of slavery. And maybe you like him. Maybe you like somebody like Joshua, who was brave and courageous as well in leading God's people and face down the enemies of God, or possibly Joseph. Uh, and it's a quote that I love all the time. There's only two people in the Bible you would, you would ever want to babysit your kids, Jesus and Joseph. That's about it. Everyone else has flaws, but Joseph is really an, an incredible character, a great man of faith. Maybe you, you uh, see Ruth and you love Ruth and her faithfulness and you identify with her and she's one of your heroes or maybe Deborah, the great judge Deborah who uh, who put a tent stake through an evil man's head. I mean, that's a great story and maybe you like that and, and maybe she's one of your favorites. All of these great leaders praised for their wonderful ability and their great faith. But I can almost guarantee you that none of you would say that Mephibosheth was one of your favorites. Because, first of all, you would have trouble saying Mephibosheth. <laughs> you say, well, Mephibosheth, how would I... Uh, all this week, Amy asked me, you know, she, at the beginning of the week, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm going to preach on Mephibosheth. And she said, well, say that three times fast. And so we all week we would do that. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. No one would pick Mephibosheth. He is, seems like such a minor character. But there's something about him... That, that just strikes me as you read through 2 Samuel and, and his name pops up at various places and at various times. It's really striking as he stands out. And for me, he's one of, the, one of my heroes in the Old Testament. In the midst of the history of God's people in 2 Samuel, in the midst of a story of kings and warriors and battles and pride, and even murder, as we're going to see in this chapter, we are given a glimpse of a five-year-old boy. He's simply a five-year-old boy. And we're told some things about his life that are really sad and tragic. And again, it just stands out in the midst of all this war and, and murder and death. All of a sudden, just a five-year-old boy is introduced to us. And in the next few weeks, I hope you see that Mephibosheth's life runs parallel to the king and at times runs perpendicular to the king. And in many ways, his life resembles our life. We're going to do three weeks on Mephibosheth. So let me pray for us. Uh, let me actually read it first and then I'll pray for us. So this is, I'm going to read all of chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is God's good and kind word to you this, this morning. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and Israel was dismayed. All Israel was dismayed. 
Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banah, and the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell and became, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Benah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his, brothers, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house as he lay on the bed in his bedroom, they struck him and they put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and all of his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand this passage. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you once again for giving us your word, uh, for it being a light into our feet. We pray that into the darkness of this world, uh, you have given light, namely the light of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would see him in this passage. And that through all of the, the harsh things that we see and we have read that you have given us in this word, that we would see your glory. Help us to see these things in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. So this morning I want to see, look at this passage in three ways. First of all, as we are introduced uh, to Mephibosheth, I want you to know about his family and, and get some context for his family. Where did he come from? Well... As you read through uh, the Old Testament at times, genealogies will pop up and genealogies of Saul will, uh, Saul will pop up, the first king of Israel. Um, Saul had a son. He actually had multiple sons. He had uh, at least four sons. But Jonathan was the most prominent of those sons. And Jonathan was an extremely capable man. Uh, he was extremely gifted by God in, in the arts of war. Uh, and as we studied 1 Samuel a couple of years ago, you would see Jonathan come out. And, and it's almost like Jonathan is presented as the man that should have been the king of Israel. Saul was incapable, was unfaithful, was idolatrous, was evil, whereas Jonathan was faithful and good throughout. 
He was extremely capable, and he would have been the next king of Israel. Well, he had one son, and his son's name is Mephibosheth. Sometimes as you read through these genealogies, they'll change the name of Mephibosheth to Meribaal, which uh, is probably his given name, and Mephibosheth, uh, his parents gave him the name Meribaal, and I'll tell you what that means in a moment. But then later on, he was identified in a different way as Mephibosheth. Uh, Meribaal means, uh, Meribaal means uh, contender with Baal, one who fights against Baal. And Jonathan was a faithful man, likely giving his son this name to say he's going to fight against Baal, the pagan god, and not serve him as so many people in Israel were doing in his day. And then later on, his name was changed to Mephibosheth and would have been identified as Mephibosheth, which means mouth of shame. Again, he initially had the name that he was strong and mighty and fought against Baal, and then his name was changed to identify his circumstances. Because he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't someone who contended with Baal, but indeed his life was full of shame, and he proceeded from shame. And what's the shame surrounding him? Well, it's this. He should have been a very important person. He should have been the next in line to be the king of Israel. But what happened? His beloved father was killed alongside of his not-so-beloved grandfather Saul on one day. And actually we're told at various places that it was Jonathan and two other sons of Saul that were killed Leadership and his family were wiped out in one day. And they were the political elites, the rulers of Jerusalem. So in one day there was familiar unrest where their family was thrown into chaos. But on top of that, because they were the ruling family of Israel, all of Israel politically was thrown into unrest as well. Unrest overtakes the nation of Israel And people are asking the question, who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be the king? Who is going to guide us out of the darkness we have been in? Well, the hope is that Ish-bosheth, his one last remaining uncle, is going to be able to do that. In in chapters 2 and 3, we see that Ish-bosheth was made king in Saul's place. And he was taking over for Saul. And even though David had his group of people and, uh, and they were trying to install David as king, Ishbosheth had a large contingency of Israel that followed him as well. So chapters 3 says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So after Saul's death, there was a war between these two houses and they were battling each other. We don't know how long that took place, but it took, took some time for things to be settled down. Ishbosheth was made king in Saul's place. And you're, you're hopeful that, that maybe he is going to be a good leader for Israel, but, but there's a problem. Uh, Abner, Ishbosheth's very capable general, defects and goes to David. And so the military leadership of Israel is in decline because they're going to David as well. And Ishbosheth, chapter 3, you can go back and read it. Even Ishbosheth knows that David is the rightful king of Israel. He's really powerless to do anything. He's, he's trying to maintain his power, he's trying to maintain control, but ultimately he knows he can't do anything to fight against David. 
So here's, here we have a picture of Mephibosheth and his family. He's from the mouth of shame, and we're just kind of introduced to him. He's the last remaining male heir of Saul. He should be king of Israel, but that's not what happens. Through no fault of his own, I want you to understand this five-year-old boy is an enemy to the true king. He didn't ask for it. He didn't want it. But his very being and presence on the earth is a threat to King David. Because there are many who would have thought he was the rightful successor to the throne. His existence is a threat to the king. Now, I want you to begin to see yourself in Mephibosheth. I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to tell you how. But you should begin to see yourself in Mephibosheth, in your family, and in, as we're going to see, your circumstances. So there's his family. Born into a family, a prominent family, but is an enemy of the king. Let's look at his circumstances. You see there in verse 4 what happens uh, to uh, Mephibosheth. There's this terrible accident. Uh, his nurse gets uh, news that Saul and Jonathan have been killed. And, and she's worried about the life of Mephibosheth. She understands his life and the importance of his life. She picks him up to run away. Because inevitably, somebody would have come to try to kill the heir to the throne. She's trying to protect him. And so in her haste, she runs away with him. Somehow or another, she falls and his legs are broken. Again, a five-year-old boy at the mercy of everyone around him, the mercy of this well-meaning nurse. He's picked up. There's this accident that happens. His legs are broken. And they say, well, at least his, his life is spared and maybe there's something good that can come from it, but... But going forward at this point, there are very little prospects for his life. Very little can go right for him. His family, his family name, his being is enemy number one to King David. He's crippled in both of his feet. And he's going to be from that point on, from five years on onward, at the absolute mercy of everyone around him. He can't defend himself. He can't learn how to fight in battle or in war. He can't learn how to do a lot of things that would have been expected for the king of Israel. He was absolutely dependent upon the mercy of others his entire life. And I think this is something to wrestle with. If you haven't wrestled with it, you need to. You need to ask some questions surrounding this accident that happened. Why is Mephibosheth in this circumstance, why is this five-year-old boy facing these issues? Well, if you trace it back, you say, well, ultimately it's because, I mean, from a human perspective, he is in this circumstance because his grandfather was tall and good-looking. That's why he was the king of Israel. The rest of the Israelites looked at Saul and said, man, he's really tall. He's a foot taller than the rest of us. And when we're facing giants, we need somebody tall to face the giants. And, man, he's so good-looking. He could be, you know, a runway model or, or a quarterback for the Patriots, you know. He's a really good-looking guy. That's why Mephibosheth is in this position from an, a human standpoint. 
But ultimately, there was a spiritual thing that was happening beside that. They only wanted a king because they had rejected Yahweh as their king. He was in this place and in this position as enemy number one in Israel and even, you know, um, even crippled in his feet because Israel was an idolatrous nation who desired a king instead of Yahweh to lead them. They had rejected their true king. In a very real way, his circumstance was caused by the sin of Israel, by the sin in the world, not his own sin, but the sin of Israel. Sin has wreaked havoc in this world and on this world. So that five-year-old boys and babies and grown-ups suffer the consequences of sin. Sin has so messed with this world that five-year-old boys have to go through things like this. He didn't ask for it. He didn't want it. Some suffer more than others. Some suffer terrible evil in this world because of sin. There are terrible tragedies, terrible events. There's disabilities. There's calamities, as we saw last week. All manner of stuff happen to people. And so we can say, oh, well, it's because of sin in the world. Absolutely, it's because of sin in the world. But there's something even greater in place than the reality of sin in the world. Why does Mephibosheth suffer? And why do we suffer? This goes ultimately back to the sovereignty of God and his control over all of the things that happen in the world. This is perhaps the hardest thing for us to grasp. That God is a God who has so ordained even things like sin in the world, not that he is the cause of it or that he created it, but he has ordained things like sin and suffering in the world to be used for a specific purpose. Turn in your Bibles. Let me illustrate this. This is not just an Old Testament idea, but Jesus himself says this in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. John 9, 1 through 7. May I ask, why, why do people suffer in the world? Why is disability a thing that people have to deal with? Why is there cancer? Why are there all of these things that we go through? And this is, this is what Jesus says. John 9, verse 1. As he passed, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. There's other stuff that happens here that you can read. But you see what Jesus said. The disciples, their worldview said that the reason why this man was blind was because somebody sinned. His parents had done something wrong, and that sin was transferred to their son. Or this man himself had done something wrong and God cursed him with blindness. And Jesus said, neither of those things is true. 
Ultimately, why is he blind? Jesus says, verse 3, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Ultimately, the purpose of all of the suffering in the world, and there is purpose for it, is for the work of God to be displayed, for the glory of God to shine forth in and through the things that we suffer. Is there a purpose in this boy's life? A five-year-old boy, crippled, dependent at the mercy of others. Is there a purpose in this? Or is this really just an accident? Are the things in the world really just accidents? And there's no one in control. See, we have a worldview battle that we need to face here. Either the things that happen in this world happen completely by chance and by accident, and no one is in control. And there is no way to hope that the Lord Jesus Christ, that God the Father, will protect us and will shelter us under his wings. And you have to take care of yourself. Or God really is who he says he is. And all of the events of the world happen by design and by plan for his glory. You have to wrestle with this. It's a hard thing for us, but it's, and it's a scary thing, but it's a deeply important thing for you to wrestle with. So I want to get to finally his purpose. What's the purpose of this? And there is purpose. Um, I'm not going to go through and talk about the events of the things that happen after we're introduced to Mephibosheth. I mean, we are just, he is inserted kind of right in the middle of this story for almost no purpose, it seems like. You could read this, and, and if he didn't show up at all in verse 4, what does it matter? Why do you need to know about Mephibosheth? Because this seemingly pointless remark to this, this boy and this, this seemingly, um, you know, uh, seemingly terrible accident that happens to him becomes a central focus of the book of Samuel. Smack in the middle of death and destruction and tragedy, here's this boy crippled. And you're meant to ask the question, is there any good that can come, come by this? Because right after this, you see Ishbosheth, the pretend king of Israel, killed by his mercenaries, unjustly killed by his own mercenary soldiers that he had hired. And then, as they go to King David, you see them killed for their, them killing a righteous man. And you see a boy crippled, fleeing for his life. And, but, but in this, in the midst of this, you see kind of the point, and you see some hope. Maybe there's going to be another king, maybe, just maybe, who begins to make way for Mephibosheth's redemption. Because what he does in this story is an act, what David does in this story is an act of kindness, even to Mephibosheth, who he doesn't know. These men, if they would have been allowed to live, no doubt would have tried to find Mephibosheth and kill him. And so David, in killing those unrighteous men, protected and spared the life of Mephibosheth. I don't want to give it all away because the next thing that we're going to see whenever I preach on Mephibosheth again, the answer is yes, there is purpose and there is good in what's happening to him. Because here is a king who defends even his enemies. 
In the starkest terms I can think of, here's the boy who is in the eyes of the world, almost completely useless, who is a waste of oxygen, who deserves the king's wrath because his being is offensive to the king. But what's going to happen to him? If Saul and Jonathan and Ishbosheth all met violent ends to their life, is this boy going to meet a violent end as well? I'm not going to give it away. We'll see it next time what happens to Mephibosheth. But I hope you begin to see yourself in this story. Martin Luther famously exclaimed, We are all Mephibosheth. Because here's the reality. You know, you were born into a royal family in this world as well. Do you realize that? You are royalty. Because all humans are of the royal line of Adam. The first man. And because of his sin, here's the reality. You have original sin in you as well. You are a royal person. You are meant to be a very important person because you are of the line of Adam. But because of your original sin, your being is offensive to the true king as well. You were born into the world with the mark of Adam's sin, of a royal family line, but you are disabled as well, just like Mephibosheth. You may not have a physical disability, but some of us do. But all of us have a spiritual disability, unable to do anything before the true king to please him. Unable to do anything for ourselves. Unable to earn the favor of our true king. Our only hope is that the true king would be merciful to us and our helpless, sinful estate. You are Mephibosheth. Have you come to grips with who you really are before the true king, Jesus Christ? It's only then that you will begin to see just how much the true king has loved you and what he has done for you. I love Mephibosheth. He is not perfect. He does some things that are just wrong. And some things happen to him that are just wrong, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. But more than anything, we see that the true hero is Jesus Christ, the true king who does all for his people when we cannot do anything for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message today, and I pray that, that we would see ourselves as we truly are before you, in need of your mercy. Lord, we thank you for giving us that mercy. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has provided the way for us so that though, in, though we are in our helpless estate, we have been fully helped by him. Encourage us this day with that good news. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand now and sing our closing hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less.